Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. We suffer from this age of safetyism. We are caught up in a culture that idolizes being safe at all costs. And, and with that comes a selfishness. The left has essentially declared that only a wanted child is an image of dei child. Only a wanted child is a child that's made in the image of God. And, and if you're not desired, then you don't have any intrinsic value. And to say that whatever the major total obstacle is that they're facing, whatever hardship, to say that God has nothing to do with it, then sets sin or this fallen world as though it were its own God. It's absolutely true that the Bible norms the church's creeds, but these summaries of faith tell us precisely what the church believes the Bible is saying. Amateur home improvers in Italy love issues, etc. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther is famous for saying we should always daily exercise ourselves in the catechism. He was talking there not only about the more famous small catechism, but about a larger work that he did, really a series of sermons that he did called the large catechism, where he goes into more detail, has more application. Now, from time to time, the church who subscribes to this large catechism, the small catechism, and all the rest of the Lutheran confessions want to seek out some contemporary applications to those things. This was recently done in a publication called Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications. At its initial publishing, it garnered some controversy. How much of the criticism is true? Well, for the next hour or so, we're going to find out. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us to discuss the large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications, Dr. Jordan Cooper. He's executive director of Just and Sinner and president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back, Todd. Unlike some who have taken to social media to critique this resource, have you actually read this new 900-page book? I have read the whole book. It's pretty long, so it's a lot to get through. But uh, yes, I did manage my way through through all of the essays uh, in this volume. What is this resource? What is Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications? How would you describe it? Yeah, sure. So this, you know, just reading through through the introduction here, this was basically put together as a way to catechize adults. Uh, and it was said that there was a resolution, it was 10 years ago now in 2013, within the LCMS to provide other catechetical resources for adults. So the purpose of this was to include the large catechism of Martin Luther with a series of, and it has pretty extensive footnotes throughout giving explanatory information historically and theologically about the various things that are said by Luther in the catechism. But then also to provide a number of essays by contemporary pastors, professors, theologians, 
to both explain Luther's doctrine that's in the catechism, but also to apply it in a contemporary context. So this is something that you see in a lot of these essays is that they're really trying to, to ask, how does this apply today to these truths? How does this commandment apply to maybe a debate that our society is having in our current age? So I think the goal is really to try to provide both a commentary and an application of the large catechism to contemporary adults. So I would say that the people that maybe this is written for, you know, I've heard some say that, and I, I don't know all the details about what all of the mindset was. I, you know, I'm just going by the introductory material in here, but I know some have said it was written for pastors. It doesn't read like a document that's written for pastors. It reads more like a book that's written for laity who want to get more educated about their, their doctrine and practice from a Lutheran tradition. It's really a two-part work, even though these essays are interspersed with sections of Luther's large catechism. Are the words of Luther's large catechism at all, anyway, altered? No, I mean, it is just Luther's large catechism. And I've seen some comments from people who probably weren't too familiar with the purpose of, of this work, almost speaking as if the essays were meant to be as authoritative as the words of Luther's catechism as some kind of a new confession for the, for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Clearly, that's not the intention of this. It's just to provide some contemporary application of these things. But yes, Luther's catechism is in here with notes. Uh, Luther's catechism is not updated or changed in any way. With that said, some have suggested that it might have been more prudent to actually make it a two-part work, to have Luther's large catechism, and then also to have a separate volume, a attendant volume of these essays to avoid any of that kind of confusion. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't see why that would be a bad thing to do. I will say that in reading the book, it is a little bit awkward because you're kind of bouncing back and forth between the catechism, extensive notes on the catechism, and then essays, and then back to the catechism. So it could come across as a little odd in terms of the structure. So it would actually make a bit of sense to have it as a companion volume. I understand, though, the reason that they wanted to have it in a single volume is so that you have this thing you can carry around with you that has both the catechism and the commentary all in one volume. But perhaps that that would have been a wise decision to do it in that way. But I really still don't think it was in any way, the intention to confuse the commentary or the essays with the catechism itself. Moving to the content, what were some of the better essays and why did they stand out to you? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, like any volume that is a multi-author volume, uh, especially one with so many essays. And I didn't count the number of essays, but there are a lot of them in here and a lot of different authors. But like any multi-author volume, you're going to read the essays and some are going to be of better quality than others or maybe more useful than others or or more kind of aligned with maybe your concerns than others. So at least in terms of ones that really stood out to me, I think Leopoldo Sanchez's essays, I mean, he had three in here and I thought they were all very helpful, especially his essay on baptism, I think was probably my favorite in the whole volume. And that was really a treatment of our baptism as being an incorporation into Christ and a sharing in Christ's own baptism which I think really puts a lot of depth and understanding to what's going on at baptism, probably beyond what some laity would necessarily understand. So that that was probably the, the standout article to me if I had to pick one. But there were a number of really great articles. Charles Gieschen's article on the Second Commandment, I thought was the most well done in terms of its just extensive biblical citation and references. So I thought that was a, a very helpful biblical exploration of that theme largely uh, in an Old Testament context. 
Some of the others that I found helpful, Introduction to the Commandments from Gilbert Mylander, the ethicist, was, I think, very helpful from his perspective. Angus Manoj's article on the First Commandment and apologetics was very helpful, as Manoj always is on issues of apologetics. Gene Veith has a really great essay on baptism later on in the volumes, toward the end of the volume here. Sinkbeil has an essay on the role of the cross in the Christian life, which is kind of a summary of some of the more recent work and writing that he's done, which is very helpful, very pastoral and practical as always. And maybe one more to mention, because I think maybe this essay kind of helps to get at, I think, what was intended by this volume. And that is um, A. Trevor Sutton's Virtual Christianity essay. And that essay, I think, is, is particularly notable because it is applying the truths or realities of of what's taught in the catechism to a modern context. So he deals with issues of people wanting to have online church. And as we've seen during COVID, some people decided that they didn't need to be, you know, in the gathering of real believers in person, that they thought they could do things like online communion or these different kinds of practices. And Sutton, I think, has a very helpful, clear essay addressing that question and addressing that question saying, well, there's a reason why God has called us to be in church in person. Yes, you can get the word of God as you watch the service on the TV screen or on your computer, but it's ultimately God's desire and there are good reasons for it that we are to gather together in person to receive the means of grace. So those are some of the essays, at least that stood out to me. So you say that the worst of the essays in this volume was an essay by Dr. Steve Paulson on the third commandment. Why do you say that? Yeah, so Stephen Paulson um, is 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 not in the LCMS. Uh, Stephen Paulson is a theologian within the ELCA. So there are a lot of ideas that Stephen Paulson has, particularly about his approach to the law, and he's writing on the law here, that are very much inconsistent with our confessions. So for example, Stephen Paulson has a series of books expounding upon what he says is Luther's theology, but I would take serious issue with that. But essentially, what is his theology that's called the outlaw God? And the essence of that that whole set, I mean, even the title itself, is the idea that God works apart from his law altogether. What he doesn't mean is kind of a classical understanding of Lutheran law-gospel distinction, where it's not that God overthrows the law, but he fulfills the law in Christ. Christ fulfills the law for us. He vicariously satisfies the demands of the law for us. In Paulson's theology, the law is not eternal. The law is not something that is just consistent with God's character, but instead, Jesus doesn't actually even need to fulfill the law for us. Jesus doesn't need to vicariously satisfy the law on our behalf. In fact, God just works totally apart from the law altogether. That idea comes from the most influential theologian on Paulson's writings, which is Gerhard Ferdi, the ELCA theologian Gerhard Ferdi, who certainly was not confessional. And, and Paulson, in some ways, has both reiterated Ferdi's ideas and I think in many ways made them even more extreme. Paulson, for example, says in his book, Lutheran theology that Jesus, quote, committed his own personal sin on the cross, which certainly is quite a blasphemous statement by itself. And I am not aware of him publicly correcting that statement, and and perhaps he has. It's my assumption it was probably a bit of overstatement, and he likes to say kind of shocking things. But I bring all of that background up because I think to have an author in this volume whose theology is so far from our confessions, especially when it comes to the issue of the law, to ask him to write on the law is in some ways kind of a stamp of approval on his writing. 
certainly on the issue of the law. So I, I think that there's a statement there. But in terms of the actual content of the essay itself, the essay has just some of the typical problems of Paulson's writing and theology in general. I assume that probably the average person reading this, honestly, is probably not going to grab onto these themes in there. But for one who is familiar with Paulson's other writings and knows his theology and Ferdy's theology, some of the issues become pretty clear. So there are two main issues that I had with this essay. One is that Paulson essentially, because it's on the third commandment, he talks about worship, and he essentially makes the third commandment into gospel rather than law. And he explains Christian worship basically as just God working through the means of grace, which absolutely is at the core of worship. This is why we talk about divine service being God serves us as is at the core of our worship, God giving us his gifts. But it's always been part of a Lutheran approach to worship to also recognize that there is a response of praise and thanksgiving. That's just the entire structure and order of our divine service. And that's just how Christians have worshiped since the beginnings of the church. So we talk about this as Eucharist, Eucharistic. There is thanksgiving that is given as part of the worship service. And that's just totally absent from Paulson's essay altogether. And I certainly would say that, I know this is a loaded term, but I do tend to think that the antinomian phrase fits Paulson's theology rather well, because there is a a hesitancy to speak of the law in a positive sense about us having obligations, (laughs) certainly the kind of third use of the law. So you see that here. Another issue with Paulson that you find in this essay is Paulson basically conflates all acts of salvation to one essential thing, and that is the proclamation of the preacher toward you, which is related to what's called the speech act taking a cue from a philosopher named John L. Austin, who's very influential upon certain Lutheran thinkers in the, in the 20th century. But this idea of the speech act essentially says that everything is about the proclamation of the preacher and all elements of salvation really are done, enacted through the words of the preacher. And he says that election happens in this particular essay. Election is actually mentioned here as God elects us in the speech of the preacher, which is simply inconsistent with Article 11 of the Formula of Concord, as well as as scripture itself, which does not see election as something the preacher does. The preacher does not get to elect people. That's something that God does, and he does it in eternity past. So classical Lutheran theology has distinctions between things like election, which is an eternity past, and the call, which is what God does through the proclamation of the word through the pastor today. And Paulson doesn't have any of those distinctions. And the biggest problem with all of this is that with his dismissal of the law as something eternal and God working outside of the law, along with his conflating all redemption into this momentary for you speech act from the preacher, you've really displaced the central purpose of the cross. And you see this in Paulson's writings is he'll talk about the cross, but what's really more central than the actual event of the cross itself, because remember Christ for Paulson doesn't have to actually vicariously atone for our sins, isn't really salvation being accomplished because the actual accomplishment for salvation for Paulson is really in the mouth of the preacher rather than on the cross. And I know that he would reject that dichotomy, but I can't see it any other way in terms of the consistency of what Paulson does in his theology. So serious concerns there with Paulson theologically in general and kind of giving a rubber stamp to Paulson, I think was a pretty bad move. But it's also that these ideas do come through in his essay. I mean, they may be subtle, but they're there. So my reading of Paulson is that at the cross, nothing really 
changes at the cross or occurs at the cross, as we would say, Christ's blood atones for our sin. He rejects that notion because of his idiosyncratic view of the law. And that what God is doing there at the cross is simply a big object lesson or an attention getter so that God can proclaim that apart from Christ, he's already justified the world by divine fiat. Am I being too harsh with Paulson's theology? Uh, no, I think you're I think you're exactly right. I think speaking of it as a kind of object lesson and a really strong object lesson is exactly what Paulson does. Because I think when you, and this comes from Ferdy, Ferdy's in his book, Where God Meets Man, he gets rid of the laws having anything to do with Christ's atonement, Christ's death, Christ's obedience to the law in his life. Ferdy refers to this as, as a ladder theology, this theology that says we can get to God by obedience to the law. Well, of course, we don't believe that you can get to God by obedience to the law because we're sinners and we can't obey the law. However, we do say that Christ did obey the law for us and vicariously satisfied the demands of the law, thus creating a way for us to God. Well, for Ferdy, he says that's still a ladder theology, a climbing up to God through the law, even if it's Jesus doing it for you. So he says, we got to get rid of that whole thing altogether. Well, when you do that, you are left in a place where the cross doesn't have the same significance that it would in our salvation and our historical theology. So what is the point of the cross? I mean, that's really the kind of the irony is it of it is Paulson and Ferdy both refer to themselves consistently as theologians of the cross, but they don't really have a theology of the cross. They can tell you that you're saved through the cross, but what does the cross actually do? And for Paulson, he's got different ways to approach this at different points. And this kind of comes from Ferdy, what he does here. But essentially, the idea is Jesus comes to the earth to just forgive because he doesn't need to do anything to forgive. God doesn't need to be satisfied. So he can just forgive openly, in which case there's no, there really is no necessity in the cross. Paulson will speak of a necessity in the cross only in one sense, that it's the necessary response of sinners that because we hate unconditional forgiveness so much, we would kill the person who tried to give it to us. So he'll say the cross is necessary, but it's only the necessary response of sinners. And then because of that, the cross confronts us with basically our legalism and then becomes the instrument of salvation through proclamation of the preacher. So the cross becomes law. 100%. That's what always happens. That's what happens in this essay here is the law becomes gospel in some way, and then the gospel becomes law, and then you end up with some weird mixture of the two, and you really have neither. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We are reviewing Luther's Large Catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. We'll get some specific citations of those teachings in Paulson's essay on the Third Commandment next. Abide with me, crown him with many crowns, hark the herald angels sing. Have you ever wondered why our beloved hymns were written? The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. This new resource includes background on 50 hymns, Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns, Volume 2. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. 
Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Join more than 500 Lutherans from around the world at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. This year's speaking lineup includes Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, journalist Mark and Molly Hemingway, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, and San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone. The attendance is limited to 500. Early bird registration is $140 and includes three meals. Find out more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We're reviewing Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's executive director of Justin Center and president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Jordan, can you give us some specific citations of the false teaching in Paulson's essay there on the third commandment? Yeah, sure. There, there are a couple places that we can look here. I have two that I can quickly look at, but the first of these is on bottom of page 205, where he's talking about the issue of election. So he says this, this actually whole paragraph is kind of helpful, but let me uh, start here. He says, the word kills and makes alive and so raises the dead. Just to be clear about what he's doing with the word, because certainly the killing and making alive, you know, we use this kind of language. The law brings about a knowledge of our sin. It kills and then we have new life through the gospel. Something that Paulson repeatedly does that is, again, taken from Ferdy is he defines the gospel by what it does and the law by what it does. So instead of the gospel being the objective message of the fact that Christ atoned for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead and accomplished our justification objectively, the gospel becomes the good news that makes you alive. That's what the gospel is. It is what it does. And the law, instead of being, because he's taken away the definition of the law as the eternal will of God, the law being something that reflects God's own eternal good nature, Instead, the law becomes that which kills. So when you see in Paul's in this language of death and life all the time, he's not just talking about the effect of the law and the gospel, 
but essentially the law is that it kills and the gospel is that it makes alive because this is related to that speech act again the act of of killing with the word of, of law and making alive with the word of the gospel so just to have that background here then i'll then i'll keep reading he says the word kills and makes alive and so raises the dead in order to have this word heard by you because the word is for you god proceeds to put his word into earthly things since faith is always in specific somethings called sacraments that its hearers believe in and which the preacher applies directly to sinners one by one and i think here is really the key point he says worship is so worship is he's not even saying worship just includes this and this is where he conflates all worship with the speech act because that's all there is worship is thus the momentous election forgiveness and resurrection of the dead by means of the year so what he does is he's conflating here election forgiveness or justification resurrection largely we're thinking about something like regeneration all of that is conflated into one thing which is what the preacher does and worship consists in just what the preacher does so if you read this just two paragraphs later this is the final paragraph in the essay he says that is all there is to god's holy worship reading preaching prayer what he's trying to do is say all that there is the reading of the word preaching prayer all of this for him is that speech act so all that there is in worship is just god doing for you and again i think that you see pretty clearly and some of this is read the essay yourself and say does he say anything about what we are to do because isn't the third commandment law <laughs> isn't law about what we are to do yeah. and the whole essay is kind of the law is actually the gospel this commandment is all actually about what god does and of course we certainly do come to worship to receive what god does because it is god's doing to it's true forgive and, and make us alive through the means of grace but anything beyond that for paulson has really disappeared so this reductionist view of worship because we certainly affirm that the primary action of divine service is God coming to us through his means of grace to deliver for us the, and here we get, we immediately begin to run afoul of Paulson to deliver to us the justification affected at the cross with the death of Jesus. But we also say that that forgiveness produces in us by the power of the word and the Holy spirit, a necessary response and you summarized it earlier as thanksgiving eucharist paulson is basically cutting the second part of that out entirely yeah absolutely you know and it's and this is a problem with his writing in general it's almost as if you know you take say take the book of romans and you know cut it off after chapter 11 <laughs> when we've got the rest of the book that does talk about eucharist and offering yourself as a, a thanksgiving offering and those are certainly elements of worship I and mean, we this comes across and you know, in the proper preface, you know, just truly good, right, and salutary that we should offer our praise and thanksgiving. Of course, it's the case. And this is what's, I think, probably deceptive about Paulson and Ferdy as well, is a lot of it sounds very Lutheran, because of course, we want to say the heart of our gathering together is God's acts through the means of grace, not our personal, what we're doing. Of course, that's true. But he's going beyond that. He's going beyond that to just not even mention that latter Thanksgiving part at all, as if it's not even in the equation. So you mentioned that Paulson's teaching that election is affected now, not by God in eternity, but today by the preacher through his speech act is a clear denial of scripture and the formula of concord. How so? 
Yeah. So in the, and you can look at, at scripture, look at Ephesians chapter one is, is the place where this shows up very obviously in scripture. And in Ephesians chapter one, Paul speaks about our election in Christ, which he says is before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him or in Christ. So that, you know, election goes in temporal terms, it goes even beyond the death of Christ. It's prior to that, but before the world itself was created, this is a decree that God made that he would save us in Christ. And then that decree from eternity past then works itself out in time. So God brings us then the gifts of Christ in time, but election itself occurs in eternity. And this is something that's very clear in the form of Concord. As I said, Article 11 deals with exactly this, largely confronting some of the teachings of Calvinism that had, by the end of the 16th century, taken hold in a lot of places. And there's no distinctive debate about election among Lutherans yet. There is later, but not in the 16th century. But the authors of the Formula of Concord knew that it was such a contested issue that they decided to write on this anyway, even though it wasn't an immediate kind of debate among Lutherans. And it's very clear throughout that article that election is something that is, it's an eternity past, because that's what scripture says. It's something that God decrees. It is immutable or unchangeable. It is identical with the, the will of God. And that will of God works itself out in our calling today, but is not conflated with what the preacher does through proclamation. I have one other concern here, and that is, you mentioned this before, that Paulson defines the law and the gospel by their effects in individual human beings. It's an existential, I would say, an existential definition of law and gospel. Does it disconnect then from the specific facts, or even in the case of the law, the specific commands and disconnect from the specific historic facts that are the content of law and gospel. It absolutely does. And this is a shift that that occurs in the 20th century in a number of, of ways. And I have referred to this as existential. And I do think existential is, is the proper term because you find very similar things in a theologian like Rudolf Bultmann. And there are a couple of times where Paulson does cite Bultmann in a positive way, though Paulson doesn't go nearly as far as Bultmann on a number of issues. But Rudolf Bultmann was, you know, a liberal theologian in the early 20th century who had this whole project of demythologization where he kind of gets rid of all the supernatural in Christianity. And I'm not saying Paulson follows him on all of those points, but he was very influenced by the ideas of Martin Heidegger and some other existentialist thinkers, where there is an emphasis on what the word does to you in the event of it confronting you. And, and then this shows up in people like Werner Ehlert. It's very common in someone like Karl Barth, who's you know not Lutheran, he's from a Reformed tradition. But then I think the place where you see this most explicitly is in, in Gerhard Ferdi in his book, The Law Gospel Debate, where he lays this out very clearly. And he mentions what is a classic distinction between the essence of the law and the office of the law. And this classical distinction says the essence of the law is the eternal immutable will of God, which is in our confessions, by the way. So it's not just that it develops later. I mean, this, this is explicitly in our confessions. So it's the immutable eternal will of God. That is the law. The office of the law is that the law condemns sinners. That's not what the law is inherently, but it's what the law does when it's confronted with sin. In other words, the problem is not the law. The problem is us, right? The law always accuses 
not because the law is by nature accusation, but because we're by nature sinners. And when we, we're under the law, it's going to accuse us because it's going to point out our sins. And Ferdy says that distinction was mistaken, that that was a wrong distinction, the essence and office of the law distinction. And he says the essence of the law is the office of the law. And at other points, Ferdy's very clear that he says the gospel too is not defined by its content, but by what it does. So this is where you get this strong distinction between preaching and proclamation, because preaching is giving information. Proclamation is the doing of something to somebody. It's the same kind of false dichotomy that you have where, and this is part of the shortening of some Lutheran sermons, but that's kind of a separate topic, but it's related to this, that when you are preaching, your job is to actually do the speech act, not to speak about the cross. Because if you're speaking about the cross, that's this theology stuff where you're defining the essence of things. But instead, what really matters is what you're doing with your words and how you enact the speech act. So that's the idea that you find in Ferdy, but Paulson basically just repeats all of this from Ferdy. Talk about the wisdom and the optics of having a former professor at an evangelical Lutheran church in America seminary write on the third commandment, which focuses on the word of God. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it's a major issue, especially when that particular ELCA theologian, it's not like he's, at least not that I am aware of, explicitly had some kind of confessional turn where he's acknowledging the inerrancy of Holy Scripture or the authority of the Lutheran confessions. Like that has not happened at all. Because you do see in here, for example, Mark Mattis wrote some and there hasn't been an, and he's in the ELCA as well. The question may be why hasn't there been some people being upset about Mattis contributing to this volume? And and the reason for that is probably because Mattis is very explicit that he holds to the inerrancy of scripture and the authority of the Lutheran confessions in a, a quia subscription. So it's not just an issue of Paulson, of his being a professor in the ELCA, but being, you know, one of those faithful confessionals. He's self-admittedly rejects aspects of the formula of Concord. He's quite critical of a doctrine of, of inerrancy, of the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. So I absolutely think that the optics are very bad when you have somebody writing on the word of God and the law in particular, who has a view of the word of God and of the law that is simply opposed to our confessions. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're reviewing Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. Some have said that this volume also contains critical race theory. We'll find out what that is and whether that's true after this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Pastor Peter Bender talking about his presentation at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference at Concordia University, Chicago. I'm going to die. Every one of us is going to die. At the time of death, the Christian faces so many assaults. We think about the death of loved ones that causes, at times, unspeakable grief. We can be assaulted by the regret over the things that we have failed to do. We wonder about the future, what will happen to loved ones. Where shall we for refuge go? To Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. You can meet and hear Pastor Peter Bender making the case for a dying man's consolation Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. For more information, visit issuesetc.org. 
Charlotte, North Carolina is one of the fastest growing metros in the United States with numerous company headquarters calling the Queen City home. Folks from all around the country have come to Charlotte for its temperate climate and convenient location between the mountains and the beach. If work, family, or vacation brings you to our area, we warmly invite you to join us at All Saints Lutheran Church, the congregation confessional in doctrine and liturgical in practice. Find us online at allsaintslutheran.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethlehem Lutheran, North Zilch, Texas. Emmaus Lutheran, South Bend, Indiana. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Toledo, Ohio. Emmanuel Lutheran, Hamilton, Ohio. Messiah Lutheran, Marysville, Washington. Peace Lutheran, Sussex, Wisconsin. Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran, Rathdrum, Idaho. St. Paul Lutheran, Austin, Texas. Zion Lutheran, Detroit, Michigan. And St. Paul Lutheran, Emmitsburg, Iowa. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Jordan Cooper, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, is our guest. We're reviewing Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications. Another criticism that has been leveled at this document is that it teaches critical race theory or leaves room for critical race theory. What is critical race theory, and does this volume clearly teach it? Yeah, sure. So CRT, critical race theory, is a hot topic for good reason, because critical race theory is, uh, in some ways, it comes out of critical theory of the Frankfurt School around you know World War II time with thinkers like Theodore Adorno and Horkheimer and some others. And it's a Marxist influence way, because it's not quite classical Marxism. It was a Marxist influence kind of way to examine culture and critique culture and institutions and all sorts of things. In our modern day, this has developed into critical race theory, which is applying some of these categories of critical theory and a kind of neo-Marxism or a Marxist examination of culture, but from the lens of race. And that's very simplistic because it's a complicated thing. But in short, that's what critical race theory is. It it looks through everything kind of through the lens of, of race and oppression, categorizes people into particular groups. You'll often hear, you know, critiques of things like whiteness as some kind of general category of oppression. Everything's just looked at through the lens of racial oppression, which can often have the effect of making uh, especially white heterosexual men the kind of ultimate enemy (laughs) in the way that it's sometimes portrayed. 
So it's certainly a huge problem in our culture. We see these ideas pushed in our education system. We see these ideas pushed in movies and television shows. So there's a bit of a a panic about this issue, and I'm not going to say it's unfounded generally. But I think that some of the problem here is because there's a real issue, people are so sensitive to some of these things that sometimes they can be it can kind of be seen around every corner. <laughs> and we have to be very careful to say what really is critical theory or critical race theory? What really is influenced by that? And what is actually just talking about racism? Because we can talk about racism without buying into these kinds of theories. I mean, people were talking, have talked about racism for a very long time and, and could do it without kind of neo-Marxist categories. So the, the concern that some people had about the essays on the catechism is that there were ideas of critical race theory that were being pushed throughout a couple of these essays. And in response, this is what I was looking for when I read this volume, because the critiques had already come out when I read this. And I was looking, reading it to say, okay, are are there, are these real problems? Are, Are there issues here? And I will say this, the major issues that people had come down to one sentence in one essay one sentence and a footnote in another essay, and then another sentence in a third essay. So the things that people are concerned about are very, very short, very brief statements that have been read in particular ways that they don't necessarily need to be read in. (laughs) But I will say this, when you read through this volume, there are a number of places, there are at least two other essays that are explicitly do this that explicitly differentiate a biblical and good concern over justice from what is the social justice movement of the left, say, which critical race theory is kind of part of that. And people are referred to this as like SJWs or whatever. This is a very broad thing. So it's hard to even kind of identify sometimes. But there are at least two points in other essays where people are very clear that we want to distance ourselves from those things. So that's important to note because when you read this whole book, it's not like everything is just the problematic statements. Other than that, though, if you want to talk about maybe what a couple of those you know, concerning things maybe were in some of this, there's a treatment of the fifth commandment, which has the subtitle Hatred as Murder, which is by Warren L. Malug Lattimore. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize to him for doing that. <laughs> but in this essay, what he's talking about is hatred as murder, which you know is what Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, trying to get to the heart of the matter. So we're not just talking about a condemnation of, you know, of killing or murder, but we're also talking about the hatred that you harbor in your heart. And he mentions in here that one instance of hatred in the individual's heart and breaking this commandment, the fifth commandment, would be racism, is, is a kind of despising people because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity in some other way. Now, on that, those who are upset about it, you know, if, if, if you are upset about racism being mentioned, because the mention really in the essay is just very vague, you know, I would urge you to, to look at statements that the CTCR of the uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has written in the past, because there's nothing new here at all. I mean, the, racism has continually been condemned, and racism absolutely is a sin. So when people are seeing there is then racism, and then their mind immediately goes to kind of some of these critical race theory things that people are talking about today, which I just don't know is fair to the essay. Now, I will say this. 
there is a footnote and it's a footnote, which means let's be honest, most people aren't even going to read that. But there is a footnote here, which says the following, and I'll read this. It's footnote number six in this essay. The deaths of a number of unarmed black citizens at the hand of white individuals or police officers sparked widespread protests and turmoil in recent years, and especially in 2020. Many churches sought ways to promote racial justice and healing. So that becomes the debated point. Now, if you're talking about this, I mean, would I have put this particular footnote in as an example? No, because you know it is a bit of a of a hot button issue. The author is trying to do what the catechism volume in general is trying to do, which is apply this to modern issues. So it kind of makes sense to bring some of this up. But the assumption, and it's not even that clear in this footnote, but the assumption people are making is that this is promoting the idea that there really is an inordinate number of black individuals that have been killed by white police officers. And it is true, statistically, when you look into this, there is no evidence to verify that that's the case. There just isn't. What we're talking about is a particular things that have happened or events that have happened that are instances of some pretty pretty awful stuff. But it's also the question of how much of this is general police brutality versus how much of it's racially motivated. It has not always been clear what's the case. So the question is, should a you know volume like this be taking a stance on those kinds of social issues and that kind of stuff? It, and I can see the criticism of that probably shouldn't have been mentioned because it leads you down this whole other kind of rabbit trail. But Again, it's a footnote. There's nothing wrong in the essay at all. There was a mention that some had made that I didn't notice when I read this, but in the footnote, the word black is capitalized and the word white is not capitalized in footnote six. I have no idea why that's the case. My guess would be it's an editing error, but I don't know that. But the assumption of some was that this was purposeful to demean white people by putting black with a capital letter and white without a capital. I think that's kind of reading the worst possible motives into something that very well could have had no motive at all. But I mean, the author could certainly be asked about that. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications is our topic. I'm Todd Wilkin. Here's a little bit from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February. Eternal Anthems, the story behind your favorite hymns. Andrew Thomas Dorsey son of a Baptist minister and a church organist, moved to Chicago from his native Georgia in 1916. There, he achieved remarkable success as an arranger, a blues pianist, and a jazz band leader, and a recording artist, but he also suffered a nervous breakdown, emerging from it only after a deeply religious experience. A little bit on the history of the hymn, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. That's the kind of background and history that you're going to get in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February. Learn more about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, and ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, 1-800-325-3040. On the other side, we'll talk about some criticism of an essay in this volume on the Fifth Commandment and the lawful use of force. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. 
Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. One of the most difficult decisions that a spouse has to make is the decision to put their beloved husband or wife into a long-term care facility as a result of mental illness. In the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Michael Casting tells the story of how he cared for his wife during her struggle with Alzheimer's and how he came to grips with this decision. To find out more, you can read his article in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Educating a new generation of Lutherans. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy. We're looking at Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications with Dr. Jordan Cooper on this Wednesday, February the 8th. Dr. Cooper is Executive Director of Justin Sinner and President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. Dr. Cooper, there was also concern expressed in some of the online criticism about an essay on the Fifth Commandment and the lawful use of force. Yeah, so the other essay, and this is an essay by Joel Bierman. And, you know, to just be straightforward, Joel Bierman's a friend of mine, and I highly respect him. So I... Uh, <laughs> that I certainly am not uh, looking at this and thinking like, let's find the worst possible conclusion here. This again is, I can give you the point of, I'll give you the context of the essay. The criticism is again, one sentence. It's the final sentence and that's it. So the, the question is, what, what, is it, what does the sentence, sentence say? The yeah, I've got it here. I can read it to you. Okay. So maybe I'll, I'll read back so you, you know what I'm referencing <laughs> because it starts with it. The sentence before says, lethal force, Luther consistently taught, is rightly used only by the one placed into the omt of authority in the state. It is never exercised for the sake of self, but always and only for the sake of the neighbor. So the criticism of this particular sentence is that what Bierman is arguing is that there is never a place for self-defense in any context. So for example, you know, say if you're you're a woman and you're being assaulted. You know, there's an assumption that Behrman would say that you don't have any right to defend yourself. You just kind of accept it. You know, say if you're an, abu- an abusive marriage or something, for example. And I have to say, I don't think that is in any way what he's even talking about here. If, if you look at the essay, 
the essay is really a description of the three estates, according to Martin Luther, where Luther distinguishes between these, these various estates that God has created, which are the church and the family and the state. So these different estates function differently. And he's largely talking about the question and just explaining what Luther says about the question of, can we use lethal force? Because the Anabaptists would argue at the time of the Reformation that a Christian can never use lethal force, say, even if they're in the military. A Christian can never use lethal force, say, if you're you're a police officer in a more modern context. You could never, there's never a situation in which you could use lethal force. And what Bierman is doing in this essay is outlining the distinction between those estates and trying to make the point, which is what Luther does, that what the Bible condemns, because it does talk about things, right, we've got to deal with a couple of realities here. One is Romans 13 says that the emperor, you know, bears the sword as a servant of God. So we see that the emperor can use a sword and kill. But we also have the reality of nonviolence, of what Jesus says, things like turn the other cheek. Peter, for example, uses the example of Christ being taken to trial without fighting back, without saying a word. That's supposed to be our attitude and not not to, to attack back with violence. So the reality is you have these two things in scripture. So it's a question of how do you fit those together? And Luther's response is to say, well, when you are serving in a particular vocation of the state, or even a vocation of, say, father, if you're protecting your kids, or you know, there are various other vocations that, that you could serve in where maybe some kind of violence is justified. He's saying those, those kinds of instances are ones in which you can use violence as part of your vocation, but you don't do it personally. You don't get to just say, well, I want to, for example, Luther talks about the executioner, right? He says the executioner, and here's a kind of a strange example, but they can kill somebody and be doing the will of God and killing. However, if that same person kills, even as the executioner, if they are killing with hatred in their heart, with revenge in their heart, because they're mad at the person that they're executing, that would be a sin. Even in that same instance, there's like, because when that is a personal thing, you do not have the authority to raise the sword against whoever you want. You can only do that if you are in a particular vocational calling that has allowed you to do that. So we don't have, you know, vigilante justice or something in a Christian perspective. So that's the context that Bierman is talking about here. And I think that a lot of people, because a lot of people saw the quotes without the context, they just saw one line, another line here, another line here with commentary that explained it, which is not giving context in the actual article itself. I think that people are reading this far beyond anything that was actually intended by what Bierman was saying. Concerns have also been raised about an essay on the Sixth Commandment titled Encouragement for Christians with Gender Dysphoria and Homosexual Attraction. What were the concerns raised, and did you find those concerns justified in that essay? Yeah, there were quite a few concerns raised about about that particular essay. I mean, it does talk about things like gender dysphoria, and it talks about homosexuality. Um, some people were concerned that there was some language about those things maybe being burdens rather than sins. And there was one particular sentence I know that people had had highlighted. But if if you read through, I mean, and I would just encourage anybody, you know, don't you don't have to listen to me, just read it. Like maybe I'm reading it wrong, and that's fine. You know, read it yourself. But it's important to actually read the context. But I'll say when you read this essay, I didn't really find issues at all with it. I think the primary purpose of this article is talking about the necessity to 
to kind of bear with others' burdens on those issues. So the author of this, which is Stephen N. Lee, is very clear about homosexuality being sin, even same-sex desires being sin, not just same-sex actions. He's very clear about the fact that those who have gender dysphoria cannot and should not change their bodies to align with, with their internal feelings of what gender they are. But I think it's dealt with in a careful and pastoral way. And this is really what I think, some of this is the question of what's the context of the essay? What context are we talking about? Is this, say, this article written as, say, kind of an, an ethical debate about gender transition surgeries or something? And that's not really the the purpose of this particular article. Now, I do think the article is pretty clear. On, I, I mean, maybe there's something I missed. I read this article like three times and because I was trying to figure out what the big issue here was. And maybe there's something that I'm that I'm missing here. But it seemed to me that it's more just trying to take a pastoral approach of recognizing the reality of of similar use to Sipicotter, that we are saints and sinners, and that things like gender dysphoria and homosexual attraction, those are things that are realities that some people face. And we all face realities of the consequence of sin. And I think he's very realistic that we are not promised, say, total victory over sins in our lives as much as we would love that if we were Christian perfectionists like like the Wesleyans. But scripture doesn't promise that. So he does say things like, you know, gender dysphoria may be something that you wrestle with your whole life, which I think is just a realistic and consistently Lutheran view of, of sin. So I just didn't see him being light on this at all. I've seen a lot of debates in more conservative church bodies over some of these these issues. And I know there are debates about terminology. For example, there are some people who would say that it's okay to identify as a gay Christian, even if you're living a celibate life and don't engage in same-sex activity. This essay doesn't use any of that language at all, which I do think would be a problem. It very clearly avoids using that language. There are some who are very shy about ever saying that same-sex attraction would be sinful, only the same-sex actions. This essay doesn't do that. It's very clear that it's same-sex attraction as well that is sinful because all distorted desire is sinful, which includes all of us. So on the like key points where I see a lot of debates in other church bodies, I just don't see compromise in this essay. I really don't. And again, maybe there's something that I'm missing, but you know, I'd encourage everyone, if you're concerned about it, to, to read it. It seems very orthodox and very pastoral. We're reviewing Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications with Dr. Jordan Cooper, President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. You're connected to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. You folks listening on terrestrial radio and internet streaming stations, you can listen to the rest of our interview with Dr. Cooper at issuesetc.org and the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. When we come back, questions about female contributors in the essay section. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E at M-E-L-H-S dot org. 
jkrause at melhs.org. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for the people of God. Crusom has an amazing selection of affordable and beautiful church banners for Lent, Holy Week, and Easter. Ad Crusom can customize church banners to fit your church's size or color requirements. Learn more at adcrusom.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Reviewing Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications, Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Dr. Cooper, what are your thoughts on the concerns some have expressed about female contributors to the essay section? Yeah, that's a good question. In some ways, I'm like, I'm not even in the, I mean, the reality is I'm not even in the LCMS. So to some degree, I don't know that I want to comment too much on on what they do on that issue. But I'll say this, because there's been a lot of pushback about this recently. I mean, I had never seen pushback about very similar things, you know, five years ago, but but all of a sudden it seems like they're, well, I mean, even at your conference, right? The Issues, et cetera, Making the Case Conference, you have Women Speak. Uh, I've heard some of these same people object to that, you know, that, that women shouldn't be speaking in any context like that. They either. might suggest we have no women guests at all. Some might. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be surprising. What I think this is, first of all, I want to say, I, I want to validate the concern to some degree in that it is true that we live in a society that wants to equalize men and women and say that there are no differences between men and women and everything that a man can do, a woman can do. And well, maybe now with the trans movement, it's everything a woman can do, a man can do too, but maybe better, which is another issue. But so those things all around us are what's causing all of the kind of fear about this, which which I get because the concerns are valid, right? There are things going on in the culture on those fronts that are causing concern. And it is also true that there are plenty of church bodies that do ordain women to the pastoral office. And we don't in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm in the AALC and we, we have the same stance because we're in fellowship. We have the same stance on this issue. We do not ordain women to the pastoral office because of what scripture says on those issues, particularly you know what Paul says to Timothy, not exclusively, but largely that. So the concerns are, I think, driven by cultural shift and then driven by fear of women's ordination. So some people are, again, I think just kind of seeing it where it's not there. So I would say this, and this is always my response when people ask this question, that we do have to reckon with the reality in scripture that women are not always silent in the New Testament. Now, hear me clearly, okay? Scripture is very clear that the pastoral office is limited to men. And I take that interpretation. I think that's a straightforward interpretation. I think contextually, that's the only interpretation you can really take of you know, what Paul says to Timothy while really being consistent with the context. And I think other arguments otherwise just really don't work. So I'm, I'm very committed to that biblically. But we also do have to reckon with the reality that you have things like Anna, the prophetess, shows up and prophesies over Jesus. God has her meet the infant Jesus in the temple and she prophesies. I assume that men who were in the temple at that time and heard Anna would have learned from those words. 
I mean, I think there's a sense in which, you know, Mary says the Magnificat. Do we not learn from the words of Mary in the Magnificat? Is there an absolute sense in which there is never learning from women in any context? But then we also have the example of what's going on in the Corinthian church, where Paul is making some of his most clear statements about gender distinction in that the women's heads are covered and men's are not covered, but he's talking about when the women are prophesying and praying. What seems to be the case is that there is at least some kind of gathering. My, my argument would be it's not actually a, what we would usually think of as like a, a divine service, but, but there is some context in which there is a gathering where there are men and women in the same room, which is why we have the head covering discussion in the first place, where women are prophesying. And prophesying is a form of teaching in some sense. So I'm not going to say that there's a very like easy answer to all of the questions about men and women distinctions in terms of teaching. You know, scripture doesn't outline, doesn't say, hey, men can be pastors and women can do X, Y, and Z. We're not given those kind of guidelines. But those are realities that we have to reckon with. If we do believe that all of scripture is inerrant inspired, you can't just grab onto the male ordination text and then also ignore all of these other realities we find in the New Testament. So somehow we have to come to grapple with those. And the church has historically grappled with those. So when women, I mean, you have women in the Middle Ages writing stuff too, and, and it doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's not like this is just the result of modernity. There are fears of modernity, rightly, and, and rightly fears about where many things are going in our culture on those those fronts. But I also think it's important not to just be reactionary. Like we can't just react and say because the culture has gone this way, we need to kind of do exactly the opposite. What we want to do is be biblical in all things. And when we do see those instances to some degree of women doing some kind of teaching capacity, again, not in the pastoral office, then does that open up some kind of validity for having women write articles sometimes? I don't see an issue with it as long as there is a very clear distinction between that and the pastoral office, which has to be kept. So in a more general sense, some have said that because many of these concerns have been, I would say, cherry-picked, and taken out of context, presented out of context. Some have reacted that, well, context is the last refuge of the heretic or something like that. But just because liberals often take refuge in statements like, you're taking these quotes out of context, does that mean context is unimportant? I mean, of course not. I mean, this is how we do anything. This is like hermeneutics 101. We tell you how to read scripture <laughs> is, you know, they say that like the three rules of hermeneutics, right? Reading scripture properly is context, context, context. And there's a reason why people repeat that all the time, because of course that's true. And the reality is you can make anything sound bad when you take it out of context. So this is what, you know, atheists do to the Bible all the time. You can take some random quotes and make the Bible look really bad because you've taken things totally out of context. And nobody likes it when their <laughs> words are taken out of context. Uh, you can literally do this to, to anything. I have this happen to me all the time. Someone grabs onto a random sentence that I said without any context and quotes it and makes it sound like it's something that it's not. And people have this happen to them all the time. And of course, none of us like that. Spouses, if they're fighting, can do this to each other <laughs> and taking something they said a long time ago and taking it out of context. So no, I don't think that it is bad to look at context. That's always important. Now, I would urge people to read the context and then see what the person is really saying. And sure, if they try to use context as a way to kind of squirm out of any responsibility for what they're saying, okay, I get that. And that's not okay. But yeah, you have to look at the context first. I'd say something kind of similar about, and this is, and so I've seen this in some of the discourse online, which is, you know, we are called in the catechism, Luther says to put the best construction on all things. 
not look for the worst in everything, not not try to read everything in the worst possible light. And I do think this, the pushback about this, and, and I'm not saying there are no valid critiques to make of anything. I certainly wouldn't say that, but the pushback to this is kind of, is exactly the opposite of that. It's not putting the best construction on anything. It's putting the worst construction on what you read. Now, when I say that or see others saying that, I know there's a lot of pushback because people say, look, you can kind of use that, right? You can abuse what Luther says there as a way to ignore problems, which is true. And I've seen that happen too, right? You can use that as a way to be like, well, put the best construction on it. So like, if there's a real threat or a real problem, just ignore it. And that's kind of your your kind of go-to answer, which is kind of what you're saying with context is like, you use it as a way to kind of dismiss something or somebody's criticism or somebody's real genuine concern. So we don't want to do that, but those things are important. And I do think that most readers, when they look at the context, are not going to be nearly as concerned as they maybe were if they saw some of the isolated out of context quotes. In a related matter, you're president of a seminary. What would you say to seminarians reacting and critiquing any work, cherry picking paragraphs and actually failing to read the work itself? A lot of people are opining on this work without having actually laid eyes on anything more than a paragraph or two. Yeah, sure. And that that's a major issue. I've had people review my books on Amazon that in their reviews say they haven't read my book. <laughs> so <laughs> they give me pretty negative reviews. So I, you know, th- this is the thing that happens. Yeah. So I, I teach doctrine courses this quarter at our seminary. I'm teaching doctrine too. So, you know, we have essays. We got two essays due during the course of the class. And if I received, you know, an essay that was very obvious the student hadn't actually read anything or hadn't read any of it in context and was just critiquing based on a few isolated statements, what I would do, because I'm generous sometimes with students, is I would make them totally rewrite the paper, or I would fail them, but I usually would <laughs> allow them to rewrite the paper. You cannot get a passing grade in an evaluation or review of something if you haven't actually read it. What lessons can be learned from the publishing of Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications as it's played out over the last several weeks? Oh, man, there's there's a lot. <laughs> One thing, there are a lot of lessons I think we can learn from this. One is this, that it's essential that you actually read and wrestle with the text before you jump into critique, because you may just be totally misunderstanding it. Another thing is to just not read with the worst possible conclusion already formed in your head. I've thought through this and thinking through other books, and I'm thinking through other books that you know CPH puts out or other publishing houses put out. And my thought is, if the same critical eye was given toward this book, toward any other book that say CPH or whoever puts out, there would never be a book published that didn't have massive critique and anger. It's an unsustainable way to evaluate the texts in general, because if you're looking for maybe one sentence here and one sentence there in a 900 page book, you've got five sentences you find bad. And that's your like major, you're falling into you know heresy because of this. That's just not a sustainable way to engage text at all. So I think there's a bigger problem. And I certainly hope this is not a trend toward this kind of evaluation being normative in the future. I certainly hope it's not. So I, I think those are those are certainly lessons that I would say are, are important to learn here. But also I would say, maybe this is most important, is don't just trust what somebody else says about something when somebody gets upset about something that, that's happening or a book that's published. Like wait until you actually have the information yourself and have a chance to read it. Because a lot of the people that I did see reacting the most strongly were people who had not read the book because the book wasn't even out. (laughs) I mean, most people didn't have the book yet or couldn't even have gotten the book yet. 
when a lot of these critiques started happening. So it's don't react immediately, just like anything else. Wait, look at it, take time. And if you feel that you find problems, well, then you work through those problems. And the other thing I would say is when you're looking at an issue like this, there are proper channels to use to deal with this kind of thing. And those proper channels are not just yelling and, at people and accusing people on social media and name calling and, and all sorts of other things. There's a reason why church bodies exist, why things like the CTCR exist. There are proper channels to address concerns and those concerns can be taken care of and listened to. But the way that this was done, to be honest, is actually going to mean that less people are going to be aware if there are real concerns. Because if there are legitimate concerns, which as I've said, I have some concerns about this volume as well, but if there are legitimate concerns, then nobody's going to listen to them if you start the conversation by just yelling and, and name calling, because then, well, any concern is just reactionary. So it ends up actually kind of hurting any case that could be made rather than helping. So in that vein of name calling, and I'm going to use the, it's crude language, but I'm going to use the language of some of the critics of Luther's large catechism, this latest edition. And they say, Cooper, you're just a cucking soy boy. How do you respond? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's funny to hear you say those words, Todd. I already had a conversation <laughs> with my producer about my hesitancy, but that's the language that's it being is. used. No, it is. And it's actually very important for people. I wish people didn't have to know this, but it's important for people to hear that language and know what they're saying. So to be clear, the origin of those terms, they all start on a forum called 4chan, which is a forum online that is very uncensored. <laughs> so it tends to be very, very crude. And people say kind of the most horrible, shocking things and post the most horrible, shocking things kind of on purpose. But along with that kind of culture that you find on 4chan, you find a lot of kind of weird praising of Hitler and all sorts of wild things. But there are some names that show up that you call people. So one of those is soy boy that people say, which is because soy, I guess, has estrogen in it, which scientifically the estrogen that's in soy is different from the estrogen that's in your body. It doesn't actually feminize men, but that's what they say. So that you're a, you're a kind of like a girly man, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of like the, you know, insult that you find in elementary school when it's like, you run like a girl. I mean, I don't think it has more substance to it than that, except for it's sometimes people who are adults saying them. And the other uh, cuck, uh, which is a word I don't like to say at all, but it does get thrown around at people and at me on a daily basis at this point, is someone who watches their wife have relations with another man. That's what that is. So to that, I say, I think, first of all, it's completely unchristian language and behavior. And a lot of the behavior that you see online is, is completely opposed to how we are to conduct ourselves it's sinful to refer to people this way. It's certainly sinful to refer to your own ecclesiastical superiors this way, like some people do to their pastors or district president or synodical president. It also just shows that there's no argument. You can't actually really engage with the text. You can't really engage with an argument. All you can do is just kind of name call and insult people and somehow think that you're proving a point. So if you're asking, what do I say to those things? Am I either of those things? Uh, most certainly not. Would you be willing to return next week to respond to some reactions from our listeners to our interview, this interview on Luther's Large Catechism with Annotations and Contemporary Applications? Yeah, no, I, I would be happy to, to do that. I know that there are a lot of questions related to this. We didn't talk about 
all of the things that have been debated or questioned. And there very well may be more things that I didn't notice in my, I read through it pretty quickly. So it wouldn't surprise me if I missed a couple of things. But yeah, no, I, I would be totally happy to, to come back. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Justin Sinner and president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary. You'll find a link to Justin Sinner at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Jordan, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss religions on trial with attorney Mark Lanier. We'll talk with Dr. John Bombaro about true tolerance, and we'll respond to your email, talkback at issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. comment line. I'm going to address my fellow pastors here on this particular subject. If someone criticized your Sunday sermon saying that it was full of errors without having actually heard the sermon, what would you think? Wouldn't you immediately print off a copy of that sermon and ask them to read it? What if they said, I don't have to read it. Someone on Facebook said it was full of errors. What would you think? Now, some have criticized issues, etc., for not jumping in the fray while so many others did. Well, there's a reason we didn't jump in right away. It takes time to read almost a thousand pages. One of the most perplexing things about the online reaction to this book is not that it was being criticized. That is bound to happen. It probably should happen. We should always test everything against Scripture. No, what I find so perplexing is that much of that online criticism focused on apparent or perceived problems and missed the real specific problems with the book. And there's a reason they missed them. Most of those criticisms came from critics who hadn't read the book. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.